All right, as we approach our Thanksgiving week, I'd like to uh, open up with us the next two verses in Colossians. Some of you are wondering, the next two? What are you talking about? Um, This has been a long-going sermon series that we started in 2020, so here's the next chance to get into Colossians. Um, I'll never stop using that joke because it will be months before I get into the next Colossians, so it'll be fresh then as well. Will you open your Bible to Colossians chapter 2? I say two verses. It's really because these two verses uh, belong in one sermon alone. They need to be focused on uh, just these two verses. Because it's such a, an important part of Paul's letter. But I'd ask you a question as we get started. Have you ever started something that you never finished? Maybe you started a book. All right, how many of you have started a book that you never finished? I would maybe guess every one of us have done that. I know I have done that uh, over and over again. Uh, maybe you've started a foot race or some kind of marathon that you've uh, had great intentions for, you trained for, but just when it came to it, you had to, you had to quit before finishing. Maybe you started a second helping of food. Maybe you will this Thursday, and you won't be able to finish. Maybe it's a project, like building a tree house for your kids. You know, the boards still are halfway up in the tree, uh, not quite finished. Maybe knitting a sweater, cleaning that room in your house. Or planning to run away. This is an a unusual thing to mention, but when I was 11, I was part of a, a little club of boys my age, and one of the things we were passionate about doing was running away. Now, we all had stable, loving homes, so there was no reason for this at all, other than the romantic idea of running away, like uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckle, Huckleberry Finn. Um, well, I was the maps guy in this, uh, this little club. And so my job was just to make sure I knew where we were going. <laughs> okay. And so what I did was every time my family stopped at a, a welcome center or a tourist place, I just grabbed every map that I could find. <laughs> and I had a stack of maps. Well, needless to say, we never <laughs> ran away. We never finished that project at all. <laughs> but maybe you've started a workout routine. Hey, and then, and then for some reason, that never followed through. Well, what kind of things keep us from following through on these projects that we set out on? Maybe with the book, okay, maybe with the book, uh, you lose interest in the story. Maybe the, the writing style grows boring or monotonous. It's longer than you thought it was. I once began The Count of Monte Cristo, the unabridged version, and I made it 300 pages in. I think I was 17 at the time, so that was a, that was a big deal. I only had 1,000 pages left to go, so I gave up. <laughs> maybe uh, with the workout routine, it's harder than you thought. Maybe you ran out of energy because you didn't plan your diet right. Your workout buddy bailed on you. Or you know what? After all, one day you simply realized that your body wasn't that bad after all. You're <laughs> doing okay. I promise you is not planning this to be a stand-up comedy show. This is, I feel a little embarrassed by this. Okay, let me just take a moment to uh, highlight for you the need for why we need to listen to these two verses. Okay, 
I think a lot of people experience Christianity like a project that they've started, but they weren't prepared to finish. I think we all know people who grew up Christian, who said they received Christ when they were little, but who years later had become completely wrapped up in worldly ambitions or their own selves and left Christ behind. Perhaps for some it was a clear point when they decided, I don't want anything to do with God and the Bible anymore. Perhaps for others it was just a busy career, growing important, making a lot of monies that just kind of took the focus and put it somewhere else. For others still, they may have started Christianity with enthusiasm, but as soon as the feelings began to fade, they went in search of the next thing that would bring them that punch, that would, that would create those feelings or bring, make them feel happy or satisfied. Some others still may have been influenced by a different worldview or a religion that promised happiness and security, but without demanding that they submit to someone as Lord. There are limitless reasons why some people uh, who initially claim to be Christians end up leaving Christianity altogether, or worse, continuing to claim to be a Christian, but just living for themselves. If we were somehow able to look inside the hearts of those people who chose to abandon Christ, I wonder what we would find. What reasons would they have for that decision? Maybe we'd find reasons like this. They got tired of the embarrassment from other people about the fact that they follow this antiquated, politically incorrect holy book. That just became too much. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to say I believe that anymore. Maybe they thought it would make life easier to be a Christian. But when they found out that sometimes it makes life harder, they don't want anything to do with this anymore. It's not what they thought it would be. Maybe they had put their confidence in certain people like popular preachers or spiritual leaders, but then when those leaders failed, it just decimated their confidence in the truth. Maybe they never really spent time nourishing their souls with God's word or in communion with God in prayer. And so the love for God that they thought they had cooled to indifference. Or perhaps they didn't really understand the Bible in the first place. They never made the effort to study it and uh, ask the hard questions of it. When someone came along who challenged their, their belief, they weren't prepared to answer, and so they decided, you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm holding too rigorously to this idea that there's an authoritative God who has spoken inerrantly through a book, and they decide, you know what, I'm going to walk away enlightened by reason and grateful that I can see clearly now. Well, I could go on. We could, we could all share reasons that we've heard from friends or loved ones, examples of what caused different people to walk away from Christianity who at one point claimed, I am a Christian. Jesus is Lord. But this morning, uh, my goal is not to handle this potential uh, for leaving the faith that so many so-called Christians possess by just throwing up the first John 2.19 card. You know, that's the passage that teaches us and warns us that, that some will leave from among us, but they'll leave, they're leaving 
will make it clear that they were never believers in the first place, right? No, 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 my intention is not to do that, although I think that accurately accounts for so many who walk away from Jesus, is that they were never genuine in the first place. But I would, I want to emphasize that if I had to guess a lot of people's, uh, of these people who um, walk away, not a single one of these people, when they started out on this road to be a Christian, thought, I don't think I'm going to finish this thing. I don't think I'm going to, I'm going to follow this until the next thing comes along. No, they probably started it just like you or I started And that's why Paul would write to a group of believers and warn them with such a passage. So I would just ask us to turn our ears on. Don't don't turn them off thinking, well, this is only for those who aren't perhaps really believers or they're not really going to follow through. And I would just suggest to you that Paul would have none of that. You, colonial, me, as I preach God's word, listen to this warning and this encouragement and exhortation from the text. Christianity is not summed up in a prayer at one time in your life to save you from your sin. Christianity starts there, and we revel there for the rest of our lives. But Christianity is a lifelong fealty to a king whom we gladly pledge service to for the rest of our life, for the rest of our lives. The Christian life is a marathon that requires God's enabling supernatural power not only to begin, but to continue and to finish. So I pray that you'll see this morning in Paul's words to the Colossians that a Christian is not someone who merely claimed at one point, Jesus is Lord. But a Christian is someone who continues to do so. Jesus is Lord from day to day from month to month, from week, from year to year. Well, at this point in the letter of Colossians, Paul's concern that the Colossians will not be deceived or get sidetracked in their walk with Christ comes to a high point. So at the height of the letter, he lays out the big main thing he wants to tell the Colossians with his letter. This is the thesis of the whole letter, in my view. These two verses. Keep walking in Christ. That's the message for us this morning. Keep walking in Christ. So my sermon this morning has uh, two main points. I'm going to put them up here on the PowerPoint here. Very simple, because we only have two verses. There are two main points in my sermon. One is keep walking in Christ. That's what verse 6 states. And then the second part to my sermon is we're going to look at these four different strategies that Paul gives us for how we might keep walking in Christ. That'll be our our second point that we'll work through. In that first point that I'm going to look at from verse 6, I'm also going to include in there um, the why question. Why should we continue to walk in Christ? Because Paul brings that to bear when he says, therefore. He's drawing everything in the letter that he said so far. All the reasons he's given us for why we should follow Christ. And he says, therefore. So that's where we'll begin in our text, verse 6. When Paul starts out this verse with therefore, I think this word, rather than pointing only to the thought before, is actually bringing together all of the themes he's unloaded so far. 
So, so it would be like this. Paul is saying, since your faith is evidently sincere, that's how he starts out in verses 4 and 3 through 8. Since Christ is the creator, the sustainer of everything, the reason for everything existing, therefore, since your sins have been forgiven and you've been reconciled with God, therefore, since I, Paul, suffer and struggle to bring you mature in Christ, therefore, since the danger is very real that someone might deceive you into relying on something other than Christ, therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Another way you could think about what Paul is saying here is that you could read the statement, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, and then ask the question, well, why? Why should I keep walking in Christ? And you could, you could uh, summarize everything that's come before in these two points. Because Christ is supremely sufficient for us. And because you are capable of shifting from the hope of the gospel. You are capable, from, you are capable of being deceived. Well, Paul continues, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, in the Gospels, the, uh, the Greek word for, transla- that we translated um, in all the English translations, the major ones, received, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, it's most often used to describe the action of taking someone along with you, all right? For example, Jesus took his disciples along with him, Mark ten thirty two, or Satan took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, Matthew 4, 5. But on a couple occasions in the Gospels, um, that word is used in a slightly different way. For example, Mark 7, 4 reads there, uh, Jesus is speaking of the many traditions that the Pharisees observe. That word observe, that's our word right there for receive. They, they, they receive them and accept them and therefore practice them. The Pharisees observe these uh, traditions. Or in John 1, 11, John writes that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. These last two instances from Mark and John, um, I think, give more the sense of accepting something and, by implication, living according to it. Okay, we're not talking about taking someone along, right? We're talking about receiving a tradition and living according to it. In Paul's writings, this verb, this is actually the way that he uses this verb exclusively. Every time he uses this word, he's speaking about passing on or receiving a tradition, a teaching. For example, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1, he, he writes, Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Or in Galatians 1, 9, Paul says, as, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Or in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. This is the way that Paul uses this word, and that's the way that he's using it here in Colossians 2, 6. What's unique about Paul's use of the word here in our text is that it doesn't seem to appear to be talking about teaching. It seems to be a person, right? Take this person along with you. And yet, I would suggest from all the other uses that Paul used, we should be seeing this as actually a teaching. So in other words, 
you've received, therefore, as you've received the teaching about Jesus Christ, the Lord, so walk in him. So walk in him. So the Colossians had received the doctrine about Christ Jesus, the Lord. You know, many interpreters dig into uh, and discuss what the significance is to Paul's use of these three names here, Christ Jesus, the Lord. One of the reasons why it piques such interest is because nowhere else in the New Testament are these three titles, these three names, connected the way that they are here in Colossians, in this order with these, you know, articles and this... uh, well, the questions that are prompted by this unusual uh, arrangement is, are things like, is Christ being used as a title? Or is it like a name? Like, is it Jesus Christ, like a first name, last name? Or was it always just a title, Messiah, Jesus? Or should Lord be translated as um, a title, you know, Christ Jesus, Lord? Or is it kind of like making an assertion? Is it Christ Jesus? You should receive him as Lord, the one who's Lord over you, right? Well, commentators don't agree on that. I don't really care to get into the weeds to, to work that out for us today. But what they all highlight is that this, this, this uh, concept of Jesus is Lord is the quintessential confession of a true believer. That Jesus is Lord, that's how you mark out someone who's a, a true believer. They will say that. And they will live it. So that's likely what Paul is alluding to here. That Philippians 2.11 declaration that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10.9 confession that Jesus is Lord. When the Colossians received the message of the gospel that Epaphras taught them, they would have received it by declaring that Jesus was their Lord. Now, as people who have received and embraced that tradition, that Christ Jesus is the Lord, Paul is saying, don't trade it in for a cheap knockoff that's made by men. That's what he'll get into in verse 8 and following. Don't let anyone delude you with mere human tradition. Paul urges then with the very first imperative in his letter. Did you get that? The very first imperative in this whole letter so far. It's waited until verse 6. The first time he's going to tell you to do something. He's going to instruct the Colossians to do something. He urges then with this very first imperative, the central imperative of the letter, I would argue, walk in him. Walk in him. At the beginning of the letter, Paul prayed that the Colossians might live in a way that pleases their Lord. You see that in the way he prays for them in chapter one. I want you to walk in a way that's fully pleasing to him in every way. Now, um, I would ask you to track with me on a brief but potentially technically technical grammatical point. Uh, Some of you, I just lost you right there. We just checked out. Um, This is going to be brief, but I think I need to say it out loud from the pulpit because I think it will help you understand God's word better. So would you listen for just one moment? This, when, when Paul says walk in him, the Greek verb is in the present tense. That's the main point that I want to make, right? It's in the present tense, and you're like, why does that matter? Well, it, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of tricky, because many commentators infer from the fact that Paul uses the present tense that the verb is therefore communicating 
a continuous idea. So we should translate it as like, continue to walk in him, right? Actually, the NIV translates it that way. The NET translates it that way. Continue to live in him. Taking that Hebrew metaphor of walking as a reference to the way you live your life. But there are good reasons for questioning that you can make that direct inference just from the tense of the verb by itself. Now, while we wouldn't want to read into this verb of, you know, walk in him, the idea of continuous action based on its tense, like I would suggest there are reasons for that you shouldn't do that. Interestingly, the verb to live is a continuous idea. You don't live in a point. You live on a line. You continue to live. In addition, whether Paul intends to communicate, keep walking in Christ as though the Colossians weren't walking in Christ and they should begin, or no, as though the Colossians had been walking with Christ and should continue, or whether Paul intended to communicate, you should walk in Christ as though they weren't walking in Christ and then they should start, Again, it's not possible just to infer that by the the present tense of the verb. But look at the context. The verse before it, I think, supports this concept that they were walking well with good order and firm faith. So I suggest to us that we need to see this verb as continue to walk in him. Continue to walk in him because of the context and just the very meaning of this word. So The Colossians are doing well, but they must give continual attention to their walk with Christ if they're going to finish well. That's it. The grammatical, technical conversation is over. At this point in the letter, Paul has argued that the Colossians, and by a very short extension, we, must continue to walk in Christ. He's answered for us the why. Okay, we reviewed that in the therefore. Now he's ready to turn to address the how question. And that's where we get to point number two in my sermon outline. How can I maintain a faithful walk that won't fixate on something less than the the sufficient Jesus? What can I do to prevent myself from shifting from the hope of the gospel? Right? Is there any way that I can avoid being deluded by plausible-sounding worldviews or arguments? Yes. Yes, there is. In fact, Paul will give us four high-level strategies for maintaining a faithful walk with Christ. Now, these will be brief, but they are, they are clear and ought to be powerfully instructive for us. I plan to challenge us to apply these strategies as we consider each of them, and then I'll offer one final application suggestion at the end, a brief application at the end. So here are four strategies for staying faithful to Christ is point two. Paul, as one uh, author puts it, heaps together a cornucopia of metaphors in this, in verse 7. Have you ever tried to explain something to someone and it's complicated, or maybe uh, it's a new concept to them? So you try to explain it in terms of something that's familiar, okay? So you just reach for a metaphor from everyday life. This is what Paul is doing. He doesn't want anyone to miss this most important instruction in his letter. So he uses four different analogies, four different metaphors from four different everyday realms of life so that the Colossians could understand what it should look like to maintain a life that continues in Jesus. And the first strategy is 
to plant yourself firmly in the soil of Christ. He begins verse 7, rooted, having rooted yourself. The very first thing that Paul suggests you need to do to walk well in the Christian life is to root yourself. Now, if we're not careful to move along with Paul from metaphor to metaphor, this might strike us as really odd. Do you catch the weirdness here? Like, if you're going to walk in Christ, you need to root yourself. All right, that's like a, a, a running coach saying, like, remember the fundamentals. When you're getting ready for the race, first thing you do is bolt your shoes to the track. This is, so we got to follow, we got to follow uh, Paul as he moves from metaphor to metaphor. The first metaphor that Paul reaches for is from the realm of horticulture. I like to say that word, horticulture. Um, planting and gardening and, uh, yes, I'm weird. Uh, the verb means to firmly root one strategy for maintaining a faithful walk in Christ is to make sure that the roots of your faith are planted deeply and firmly in Christ. Two different images from the Bible come to my mind when I think of this picture that help me imagine what it looks like to be firmly rooted in Christ and what it looks like to not be firmly rooted in Christ. I think of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, 8, our passage that, that speaks about the man who trusts in the Lord is like a tree that sends its roots deep into the soil next to an abundant river. The parallelism of Psalm 1 with this passage is helpful. There in Psalm 1, the psalmist makes the connection that this man is firmly rooted because he meditates on Torah. He meditates on God's law. In both texts, because he's firmly rooted, his leaf doesn't wither. He produces fruit in its season. He prospers in everything he does. He continues in Christ, to put it in New Testament terms. Luke 8, another uh, image that this, this word brings up in my mind, the person who hears Jesus' teaching but does not persist in it, this is what he does. He falls away in a time of testing. And listen to what Christ said, because he's like a plant that doesn't have deep roots. He's, he's likened to a plant that does not deeply root itself. So when the time of testing comes, it falls away. When you read the very next paragraph in Colossians, it becomes crystal clear that Paul is encouraging a way of life that resists being uprooted or withering by false teaching or any claims to, to grow spiritually that isn't sourced in a relationship with Jesus Christ. What preparations have you made in your life, brothers and sisters, to make sure that you will continue to grow spiritually, that you'll remain rooted deeply in what you've received about Jesus Christ through the apostolic word? Is there any hard soil in your heart or life that needs to be broken up by God's grace, by his Spirit's conviction? Maybe complacency or settled sin patterns that you've given up on fighting. Are many of your roots drinking from a source other than Christ? I mean, you look at a tree. We don't get to see this often, but if you could cut away all the dirt and the clods, you would see a root system the size of the branch system. Are those roots, are they tapping into and being influenced so much by media 
and a secular mindset from work or the radio or just pop pop psychology or music that but 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 the roots that are anchored in Christ are just maybe a handful over here what kind of tree are you making what kind of fruit are, is being produced from that are you rooted firmly in Christ in case some of in his audience aren't as gripped by the horticulture metaphor uh, he switches now to a construction metaphor from gardening to the workshop. The second strategy that Paul lays out for those who wish to walk in Christ to the end is that you must build yourself skillfully upon the foundation of Christ. So rooted and built up in him. In this metaphor, Paul switches from farming to building. There's some debate here in commentaries about whether this term refers to the believers being built up in Christ as, the, as if edification Okay, like strengthening and supporting and building up, or whether it means to be built upon, as in build your life on the foundation that Jesus is Lord. I think that it's more likely that in the immediate context of being firmly rooted and established in the faith that Paul is using this metaphor to describe that claim that Jesus is your Lord is the foundation of your life. Build your life upon him. The idea here is that Jesus, and more specifically your claim that he is Lord, is your core belief. Jesus is the Lord of the universe, and he's the Lord of me. So how should I build on this confession? How should we build on that kind of confession like it were a foundation for our life? Everything that we set our hopes in, everything that we go after in life, all that we invest in with our time, our resources, our energy, should be able to stand on this foundation. Okay, I'm pursuing this because Jesus is my Lord. It should be able to fit somehow in a sentence like that. I'm going after this because I believe most of all that Jesus is my Lord, and I'll do whatever he asks me. Or I'm going to move to this state, I'm going to take this job, I'm going to marry this person because Jesus is Lord. In other words, what that might look like when it gets to practical decisions is this. Since Jesus is my Lord, what should I do in this situation? That's how, you, that's how you build on the foundation that Jesus is Lord. You start every, you, start every you, you grow to have that as your mindset. Processing every decision that way. You know how you're going to be able to answer that um, question well, though? Jesus is Lord, what should I do? You need to know who Jesus is. You need to understand what he's done. You're going to need to know what Jesus values and calls good. You're going to need to know what Jesus' priorities are. You're going to need to be really clear on what the Bible says about Jesus. I might even say that you're going to need to be convinced beyond reasonable doubt about the gospel of Christ. So Paul continues, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Now he switches to a legal metaphor, to the courtroom talk. The word he uses, established, communicates the sense of becoming convinced beyond reasonable doubt about something. If you're convinced beyond doubt about something, then you're solidly grounded in that matter. <clears throat> Have you ever heard someone say about someone else, oh yeah, I mean, he's, he's a solid guy. Or yeah, 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 she is, she is grounded in her walk with the Lord. What we mean by that when we're saying that is that those people have a clear grasp of God's word and it clearly governs their lives. So we can trust their judgment. 
The Colossians were to be convinced beyond doubt in the content that they were taught the gospel. Paul's no doubt making a reference to their being instructed by Epaphras, Pastor Epaphras, teaching them tirelessly and establishing them in uh, the faith. Do you know the gospel? Colonial, do you know the gospel? So many of you just declared the gospel and showed that you can communicate the truth of the gospel. Thank you for that. And I think every one of you have done that at some point. What if someone came up to you today, though, and said, listen, I've been hearing, you guys, you guys, all you evangelicals, you say the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. What is the gospel? Would you feel comfortable in that moment? Are you prepared to, to be able to share and help establish someone else? I, I would suggest that that's the best way that you can know whether you really understand something, is if you can pass it on to someone else in a simple way. Uh, some of our teens over the past couple of years have worked hard to know well the content and the significance of the gospel so that they can be prepared to share it. They've spent time studying books like Greg Gilbert's What is the Gospel? I'd recommend that it's really useful for thinking through the essential points of the gospel. Or another book, Learn the Gospel, that uh, Tony Payne wrote. Our teens have worked through this. Some of them have worked through this so that they can learn really and be really clear about what the gospel is. They've had assignments like writing out a summary of the gospel, outlining the main points of the gospel, supporting them with scripture, practice sharing the gospel with a friend who will critique their presentation of the gospel. Wouldn't you love something like this? Maybe not. (laughs) Or some have learned uh, the wordless book in order to teach the concepts of the gospel to small children. Something we'll be doing again this coming summer with our teens to be able to reach our neighborhoods. Well, whatever it takes for you, um, I think Paul would suggest that you need to strive to master the gospel. Not just the content, but what it should mean for you. So that you know exactly what it means to walk with Jesus as your Lord. And last but not least, Paul switches to one last metaphor. In case uh, the metaphors of horticulture, construction, or the court don't provide enough vivid and creative motivation for us to understand this most important imperative. He reaches for the one metaphor most relatable to human experiences. And you know what that is? It's food. Spill over excessively with gratitude for Christ. You can imagine a cup with its contents just coming over abundantly or a table laid out with food that's just abundantly covered. Imagine what your tables may look like this coming Thursday. All of your favorite dishes are there, right? If, you, if your Thanksgiving meals are anything like what I've had the privilege of enjoying, there's barely room for the plates and the silverware when it comes time for the Thanksgiving meal. Our tables are abounding with delicious food. They're spilling over excessively with good things to enjoy. For Paul... Thanksgiving has already been a little bit of a theme in Colossians, and it won't be the last time he emphasizes it. But how, we might ask, how would spilling over with gratitude be a strategy for maintaining a faithful walk with Jesus? Sometimes we don't connect that. Uh, this is, just seems like a good thing to do. But how does it serve in a, like, a, 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 a polemic way or an apologetic way to actually defend my faith, uh, help me to believe and stay consistent and persevere with Jesus. I suggest to you that if you strive to lead a life that is spilling over with gratitude for what God has done and is doing, 
it is less likely that you're even going to give false teaching a second look. It's less likely that you're going to lose interest in Christ. It's less likely that you're going to be deluded into thinking that it's not worth denying yourself in order to live, be, live for Christ. Because your heart is going to be so constantly reminded of how satisfying Jesus is. If you're in the, the discipline of spilling over excessively with gratitude for Christ. But a heart that is ungrateful that is not in the habit of giving thanks to God is the heart that is discontent and is going to look elsewhere for satisfaction. A heart that is not grateful is going to find its interest piqued by a worldview that doesn't require submission to anyone but me. An ungrateful heart is going to be looking all around for something better when in reality there is nothing more satisfying to our souls than the supremely sufficient Jesus. This is why the practice of giving thanks to God is something that we must be disciplining ourselves to do. A heart that is regularly giving thanks with joy to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light will not easily shift from the hope of the gospel. It will be so full with the delicacies that are the things above that you couldn't imagine taking a bite of anything less satisfying. Would you say that you cultivate the habit of thanksgiving in your home? Have you ever considered making that a regular part of your devotional life? You know, you, you spend time reading God's word, praying, asking for help, praying for loved ones, but then do you turn to a moment, Lord, for the, for the perseverance of my own faith in you, let me just go over what you've done for me. This week, today, in my relationships, and remind my own heart, worshiping you for what you've done. Uh, my wife, Carol, has been striving this November to write out five things every day for which she's grateful. I think it's a beautiful example. Perhaps that's something we could incorporate into our, our time with the Lord. Well, Paul thinks it's such a robust strategy for staying faithful that he uh, gives it place here in the thesis of his letter. We've got to be a people who abounds with thanksgiving. Well, after uh, telling you four ways that you can strive to stay walking with Christ, you might wonder, Paul, you're sounding kind of legalistic. Do this, do this, do this, do this. But remember what Paul's attitude is toward hard work. I think of chapter 1, verse 29. You can take a peek. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So we don't strive for these things by our sheer willpower. In fact, our own willpower is useless to produce acts of obedience that please God. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. Rather, we strive for these things with the heart that we're doing it for God and it will only succeed if God enables me. That's the difference between God-exalting works 
and self-focused rule-keeping. Who are you serving and whom, on whom are you relying to succeed? All right, let me uh, give you one brief challenge to apply our text this morning, and then uh, we'll close with a, a hymn. I want to challenge us, close, uh, Colonial, as we head into Thanksgiving, the week of Thanksgiving. Maybe sometime, uh, maybe it's Thanksgiving Day, or the day surrounding them when we have a little extra time. I want to challenge us to sit down, uh, maybe as a family or as an individual, and think through, perhaps write out, a plan for how you intend to stay walking with Christ to the end. How how does your family intend to make sure you don't shift from the hope that's held out in the gospel? How how do you plan to make sure that this family, we're going to call Jesus Lord till he comes for us? And so this is what I've done to make sure. Doesn't that seem like a really simple step to reach a goal? You come up with a plan, and then you work the plan. How many of us in our, our walk with the Lord are just, we disconnect this ambiguous Christian idea of walking with Christ from the way things really work? So can I just, just one example of an application Think of some time this week. Get together with your family. Maybe it's on your own. And just write out. Use this sermon, these four points, as just a template or a primer to get you thinking. How am I planning next week to stay faithful to Jesus? What's in my schedule? Um, Who's he holding me accountable? What role does my church body play in this, this goal of mine to say that Jesus is Lord to the end? So with that, I'll uh, close this in prayer and I'll invite uh, Pastor Ben and the musicians to come up and, and close. Father in heaven, you who have made us fit to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, we worship you. We say, Lord, you are kind and merciful. You've given us so much. You've forgiven our sins, our rebellion against you. Thank you. Oh, Lord, this week, may our hearts be filled with substance to be thankful for. Not just a quick, yeah, I'm thankful that this test went well, or I'm thankful to have good family around me. But thought through, sincere, God, you are merciful to me. Thank you for this. This is only because of you. What a gift. And please let that fuel our perseverance. In Jesus' name, amen.